0: Philippians chapter 3, we're going to be looking in verses 15 through chapter 4, verse 1, Lord, Lord willing, this morning. So we're, we're chugging through the book of Philippians, and I don't want to go too fast as we get into chapter 4 next week. There's a lot of meat and potatoes in chapter 4, so we're going to take it nice and slow and make sure that we cover all of these amazing truths that God has given to us. Uh, but last time we were together, we saw the Apostle Paul's great goal in life. And that was actually pretty simple. It was simply to know Jesus Christ. That's what was his motivation. That's what got him up in the morning. And that's what allowed him to go to bed peacefully at night is knowing Jesus Christ. Not just a head knowledge, though that's important. We want to know him in truth. We want to know him according to how he reveals himself to us in the word. But I want to know him. And you realize as you read truth in scripture, that's the truth through which we come to God with. It points us to Christ. It points us to how we can worship him rightly. As we worshiped him this morning, you know, we want to worship him in spirit and in truth. And so Paul's desire was to know Jesus. And he understood as part of that, that he would experience the power of his resurrection. And, and I want that, to be honest with you. I want a resurrected life. I want the power of God through the Spirit of God tangibly in my life to make a difference. I don't want to just serve dead religion. I want a real encounter with the living God, His Spirit in me, working through me. And that is the resurrection power. Now, for all of us, that may look different, right? Sometimes God miraculously just enters into your world and through His power just delivers you out of certain situations, maybe from certain health scares. You know, there are divine things that that take place. Other times, his resurrection power can be slow and steady. It could be a daily walk with Christ where every single day you grow in your knowledge of his resurrection power. For some people, it's just getting out of bed. You know, and I don't say that jokingly. I mean, seriously, for some people, getting out of bed is the most difficult task of a day, and just his grace to sustain, his power to uphold His resurrection power, but we also saw that there's this deep fellowship of his sufferings, that the cross came before the resurrection. And so there are sufferings that take place in our lives, but those sufferings are not the end in and of themselves, praise God, right? We're not here, we're not the church of sufferings. We're the church of a resurrected Savior, where sufferings did come first, but there was a final word resurrection, glorification. And notice, if you look in verse 10, as we retrack, notice that it's the power of His resurrection. It's the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. All of this points us to Him, right? Everything about this points us to Jesus Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection, His glory, and guess what? Because, you, because we put our faith and trust in Christ, we are now in Christ. He becomes our life. He becomes our pattern that we follow. And so, yes, there are sufferings in this side of eternity. There are difficulties that happen, but we understand that as his life goes, so goes our life. He's at the right hand of the Father today. He is seated there glorified, resurrected, glorified, waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool, waiting to reveal himself completely to the world. And that is our end, we're going to see as we continue in our text this morning. As Jesus is, so go we. Isn't that amazing? It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's good news. In the midst of a world full of bad news. And so Paul looked at this desire of his heart. And he realized last time together, though, that he was far from what he wanted. In other words, as he said, his life is hidden in Christ. He desires to know Christ, the power of the resurrection, fellowship of sufferings. As he looked at his goal of fully knowing Jesus, he realized he's not arrived yet. He's just on this path, but he still has a way to go. And and I, I think that's the dilemma that we find ourselves in this morning. I want more of Jesus. I want to be like Jesus more. But then I look in the mirror and I realize, wow, I have a long way to go. You know, maybe you're reading the Gospels and your morning devotions, and you see him, and you see how it is that he interacted with people. You see his giving heart. You see his, his, who he is, his person, and you realize, Lord, I want to be like you, and I have so far to go. And so Paul he likened this experience as a race. And remember, he was determined he was not going to look behind what was already past. Whether it would be his victories and the good things that he's done. Or whether it be his downfalls. Right? If we focus so much on the victories, we get proud and then we fall. If we focus too much on the past and our downfalls, we beat ourselves up and we fall. Either way, keeping our eyes on the past is not going to help us progress. If you're in a race and you look back, you're going to trip. Or you're going to run into something, probably stationary, that doesn't like to move. And so you're probably going to be the one to move if you look back in that race. But he did not look back, rather he pressed forward for the goal that was before him, which was who? Jesus. Jesus was his goal. And so he tells us now in verse 15 that we pick up, therefore, because of everything that we just talked about, therefore let us, As many as are mature have this mind. And so he's concerned about our mind. Remember in Philippians, we've seen that how you think about things matters. What you think about things matters. Because what we think about and how we think determines what we do and who we will become. I think a question we should ask ourselves is do I think biblically? You know, when I look at the world, do I think biblically? When I when I hear a message, even, for example, do I think biblically? You know, hopefully, as you've been walking with the Lord a while and you get to know this book, everything that you hear, everything that you see, you are processing through your mind, thinking biblically. How does it line up? I am telling you firsthand, I'm sure Rob told you this before, don't listen to me, listen to the word of God, and make sure that what I'm telling you is backed up by the word. Because I'm a man. And my words are are my words, but we want to know his word. And so we need to be thinking, we need to be scrutinizing when you hear a preacher on the TV. I hope you don't hear too many of them, honestly. (laughs) The way that I see most of the TV preaching today. But when you listen to things on TV or on YouTube or the radio, are you thinking biblically? Are you listening to what they're saying? And does it line up with God's word? Because no one's infallible except for God himself. You know, I'm willing to bet, I know for me, I've said things that looking back now, I think, wow, can't believe I said that. can't believe I taught that early on in my Christian walk. And then you begin to know the Lord, you begin to learn his word, and you realize that I really don't know anything other than what he's already revealed to me. And so are you testing these things? But I do want to just make a caveat with that because just like looking back, there, there's a balance with the Christian life. I found this, that we can always go from one end of the spectrum to the other. There's a danger. And so we need to test all things, but also make sure that you're allowing the Word of God to test you. See, sometimes we're so busy testing what people say that we don't allow the Word to have its impact on our own hearts. At least I found myself at that at times where I'm just listening to every word, making sure it lines up with Scripture, but I never thought, well, Lord, how does my my life line up with that Word? And so there's a balance. Test it by the word, but allow the word to test you. Do I think biblically? Now, what we'll see today, a question we could ask is, do I think heavenly or do I think earthly? And Paul's going to unpack that for us as we continue on. Here's what I've concluded. I want this mindset of Paul. I want it. I desire to desire Jesus Christ above all else. There's something within me which I attribute to the Spirit of God that has begun that work in me to desire that type of thing. Before Jesus, I had no desire for him. In fact, I was running from him. Many of us were. But when you come to know Jesus, hopefully this is your mindset. A gospel-centered mind focused on Christ and his suffering and glory as our reward and means by which God will bring about change in us, preparing us for the glory that awaits us. In other words... The gospel of Jesus is what saves us. The gospel of Jesus is what transforms us. And the gospel of Jesus is what awaits us. Everything in the Christian's life revolves around the gospel. And if it doesn't, listen to me here. If something doesn't revolve around the gospel and Jesus Christ crucified, resurrected, and glorified, you can't call it Christian I don't care what it is. You can put a Christian stamp on just about anything today. Literally, right? Like if the, in Altoona we had a Christian bookstore for years and it amazed me the things that they called Christian just because you slap a verse on something. Or today we have things even like Christian yoga. Now please understand yoga is a form of Eastern religion, of Hinduism. And the poses that people do in yoga are actually poses of God's. In that religion and so we try to stamp things say well we're going to instead of we're, we're going to use bible verses please understand if something does not revolve around the gospel we cannot rightfully call it christian it may be religious it could even be good but doesn't make it christian or fellowship for example right i love sports in fact, I was at Barnes Noble yesterday with the boys and there was a guy there with a Penn State outfit on and as a Penn State fan, yesterday was a really bad day. Gary tried to encourage me this morning. And so I see the guy with a Penn State outfit on and I say, hey, I can have fellowship with this guy. We start talking about the game and we start, you know, throwing a pity party. But we could do that with anyone. Even when it comes to fellowship, if it's genuine Christian fellowship, who does it revolve around? Rounds around Jesus. Now, can you go play golf with your buddies who are Christian? Sure. Can you have a meal with other Christians? Sure. But if I want it to be distinctly Christian, it better be about Christ. That's what sets Christianity apart. You take Christ out of Christianity, you don't have it anymore, right? Every other religion, you can take a figure out, and you still can perform those religious duties. But for us, it's about Him. It's about His person. And there's this principle of suffering, death, and resurrection. And now the fellowship in his sufferings and resurrection, then when all suffering will end, we will have a final resurrection where suffering will will cease to be. But until then, he encourages us here in verse 15 to let us have, let us as many as are mature, to have this mindset The mindset that he just laid out for us. A mindset that is totally consumed with Jesus. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Now, again, as I said earlier, I realize that I'm not where I want to be in my Christian walk. I'm not who I used to be, but I'm not who I want to be. And so sometimes we might find ourselves where we don't fully have the mind of Christ, right? Maybe sometimes with your spouse, you realize you don't fully have the mind of Christ at times, right? Or with your kids or with your co-workers. And sometimes our thinking is not necessarily in line with Scripture as God would have it. Some of us are just immature because we might be new to the faith. And we're growing. For others of us, it may be times where we've not grown at a healthy rate for various reasons. But it is no doubt a process. There is no one here who's perfected, Right? We're all in a process. But here's what I love about this verse. It is not a process in which God is absent. Because notice what he says here. Who's going to reveal this to us if we think otherwise? God will. That's great. That tells me that God does not tell us to conform to the image of Christ and then says, good luck at it. Try your best. Try harder. New Year's approaching, make a New New Year's resolution. No, he tells us God will reveal these things to us when our life doesn't fully line up with what he desires for us or when our thinking is off. Now, the question I think we should ask is, how does God reveal this to us? How does he reveal negative things that keep us from maturity? I believe there's three primary ways that he does it. Number one, through his spirit. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you're born again. You have the Spirit of God in you. And isn't the Holy Spirit very faithful for you to point things out? I love the Holy Spirit's ministry. One thing I particularly love about his ministry is this. He can say something that convicts you and encourages you all at the same time. I've learned very well. I don't do that well. I can speak a word of encouragement to the detriment of conviction... (laughs) <laughs> or I can really hammer someone with the word of God at the detriment of encouraging them. See, I can do usually one or the other, but isn't it true that the Spirit of God is so faithful to point those things out in our life? He does it in such a gentle way. He's a gentleman, but he also does it in a way that brings so much more conviction than if I was up here with my Bible machine gun just hitting you with truth, as if we don't have enough trouble with sin as it is, right? Right? And so the Spirit of God in us, he speaks to our spirit, he testifies to us, he challenges us, he convicts us when our thinking is off. At times he does it right in the middle of a conversation, doesn't he? Where you realize, wait a minute, time to just shut up and listen. I need to not talk right now. I need to listen and process what's being told to me. And so many times the Spirit of God, he's active, he's speaking to us. But what does he primarily speak to us? He speaks the word of God. See, he's the author of this book. He's the one who inspired it. He's not going to contradict himself. And so he's going to speak primarily through the Bible. He's going to, un- he's going to reveal the truth of Scripture to our hearts so that we see where our understanding goes against the word. And finally, he even decides to use people. Can you believe it? See, the Spirit of God will use His Word, and He'll use people to deliver that Word to us. And this is one of the reasons why it's so important that we be in fellowship with one another. You know, if you come to service and you just listen to the pastor, whoever that is, whether it be myself or you go to another church... And all you do is listen to the pastor, the pastor, the pastor. So you come, you listen to the pastor, that was a good word, you go home. You come back maybe midweek, listen to the word, good word, then you go home. If everyone in our church just does that, this is not going to be a healthy church. This is not going to be a mature church because we have to speak the truth in love together. And the Spirit of God will use you To speak a word of encouragement, of conviction, to your brothers and sisters. It's called body ministry, right? And if body ministry is not taking place, which, you know what, I believe it does here, because I look and I see people, a lot of you aren't very excited to leave after service. I love that. You know, did you ever go to a church where as soon as the service is over, like, boom, everyone's gone? Usually that's a church that only relies on the pastor. It's a church that only relies upon one man to deliver God's word. But as you fellowship with one another, as you use the giftings that God has given you, God will speak through you to people. What a humbling thing that is to think about, though, right? That God wants to use me to speak to someone. It's humbling. It also causes me to realize, let my words be few, right? In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking at times, and so the more I open my mouth, the more likely I am to maybe say something that's not edifying for my brother or my sister. But God will reveal these things to us. Praise him. He won't let us continue on a path that's contrary to his nature. Nevertheless, verse 16, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, Let us be of the same mind. And so whatever progress you've made in your Christian experience, keep going by what God has already showed you. Keep going by what you already know to be true. Keep going by that foundation that God willing has been laid. Because there is a trap within the church. And the trap has been there for 2,000 years because we're warned about it all throughout the New Testament. And that's this. Isn't it true we always want something new? We always want something exciting. We always want something cutting edge. And if you want evidence of that, look and watch, watch a commercial sometime for one of the fast food chains. How many ways can you dress up a hamburger and still call it a hamburger, right? What can you use for a bun that's new? <laughs> the point is that there's nothing really new under the sun, and yet we're always trying to concoct new things, and it's no different within the church. And while there's nothing wrong with desiring to learn something new, it had better be anchored on the foundation of what you know, and that is what? The gospel. Everything that we learn as Christians better be centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ, as I said earlier. If it's not centered around the gospel, we will go on a million different rabbit trails. I promise you. There are a million things out there that are, quote, Christian teaching, but again, it better go back to the gospel of Jesus. And if these, che- if these teachings or if someone's talking to you and they're not centered on the cross of Christ, on his resurrection and ascension, or are not being found in him, then run. Now, I need to be reminded of this. I need to be reminded of this every day. In fact, I believe as believers, we should be preaching the gospel to our hearts every single day. You say, well, that's weird. I thought that the gospel was for unbelievers. Did you, actually, did you know that in, in Paul's epistle to the Romans, he had never been there to Rome before, but he wants to get there. And at, in chapter 1, he tells them he wants to get to Rome so that he can preach the gospel to them. See, we as believers need the gospel preached to us. Why? Because we need to be reminded of what it's all about. Or should I say, who it's about. And if it gets about anyone other than Jesus, we're off track. If it's about the speaker if it's about the pastor, right, then it's off, it's off, because it should be about him. God forbid that I should ever draw people towards me and away from Jesus. It has to be about the Lord. And so you're going to get tired of me saying that in this message, but if you get that from this message that everything in our life as believers should be centered around the gospel then you will function properly as a believer and you will progress in your faith as a Christian. If you lose the gospel, it will become just another man-made religion of works where you're trying harder to be a better person. Good luck with that, right? Verse 17, brethren. So join in my example and note those who so walk as you have for us a pattern. So not only is Paul encouraging us to look at his life as an example of what it means to be a Christian, of what it means to be a mature Christian specifically, he also reminds us that he's not the only one. Right? Notice he uses the word us here. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk so that you may have us for a pattern. He's acknowledging that he is not the only one. He's not the spiritual guru here. He's not the one that has all the answers. He's not the guy coming into town with the super anointing, and no one else does. He has given us an example, but he notes there's also many people who've come before and after him who are examples as well. I I speak firsthand here. Rob was a great example, right? As we celebrated Pastor Rob last week and what God has done, ultimately we're giving God the glory for that, right? we realize that Rob is a man like anyone else, but he left a great example to follow. He left a great example for me to follow. And, you know, all of you being here are evidence that this church has been about the glory of Jesus and the Word of God, and not about a man. And I believe with all my heart, it would have devastated him if when he left, everyone just would have left. Not because of what he's done, but because he wants it to last. And we realize in ministry, the only thing that lasts is what's built on the foundation of Christ. And so just you being present is evidence that I am following in the footsteps of a man who laid a great example of what ministry is. Sometimes, notice too, we want to watch these people. We want to put everything we have into observing their life. They are become a pattern for us. You know, sometimes this is not just taught, it's also caught, right? It's not just about the words that come out of people's mouth. I want to see how they walk the walk. See, when I was a new believer, I would hear someone quote scripture a lot, maybe when they're praying, you know, they even used maybe the King James language. And if you're using King James language, you really have to be a powerful Christian. At least that was the way I thought, right? And so I would hear people just use scripture all the time and I'd be like, wow, that person is really mature. And then you learn very quickly that just because someone knows the truth doesn't equal maturity, does it? See, I want to look at people, not only who know the word. You better know the word. You better worship God in truth. But I want to know people who also live it out, who walk it out. I don't want to be like that parent who says, do as I say, not as I do. I don't want to follow a walking contradiction. I want an example. I want to watch someone's life and say, oh, Lord, I I want to love like this person loves other people, Lord. I see them. They're so giving. They're so selfless. Lord, I want that. But you know what we really want? We want what Christ has done in that person, don't we? Because that person wasn't like that before Christ. We want what the Spirit of God is doing in that person. And so we need to note these people. Maybe you have someone sitting right next to you today who's one of those people. Or it's a parent, a grandparent, a, a neighbor, a coworker. Note those people who have set a pattern for us. And ultimately, their pattern should be Christ. His life walked out, right? It's what becomes so attractive. Those who experience death to self for the sake of others, who've demonstrated genuine love, self-emptying. And that's what ministry really is. Do you realize ministry is merely serving? That's all ministry is. It's not about being called a minister. It's not about being the reverend, right? I always thought that word was kind of funny, reverend. To me, the only one who I revere is Jesus. Don't don't revere me. But ministry is about serving. It's about constantly pouring out into others. It's actually, get this, it's training my replacements. Ministry is pouring my life out for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Jesus, so that others may be edified so that Jesus may be glorified. It's dying to self daily. It's making nothing of myself for the sake of others and for him. Why? Because this is what Jesus did. See, remember, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 came first before this, didn't they? The great emptying of the Son of God. He becomes our pattern. So if you want to be like Jesus, there's this great emptying of our own self that must take place. And that's ministry. And it's the opposite of what you will find so often in the church, the gimme, gimme, gimme mentality. The person who wants position, they want status, they want to be someone within the church. And when they don't get that something, what happens? We bite and we devour, And we do all kinds of earthly, demonic things to try to get what we want. Do you realize in the book of James, he calls that kind of wisdom demonic and sensual. And it bears bad fruit, right? It breeds confusion and chaos, bickering, fighting, arguing, everything that the Lord doesn't want for us. Remember, he just told us he wants us to be of the same mind. He wants us to have the same heart in this thing. And so join in following my example. Note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. That's the positive side. Now he's going to get to the not so positive side. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. And when we see Paul referring to them as enemies of the cross of Christ, now who are these people? That's strong language, right? I don't want to be referred to as an enemy of the cross of Christ. That's like not good news. But what do we know about these people? What can we assume about them? Because he doesn't tell us who they are. He's not going to. He's not going to say, well, it's this person or that person. He's just giving us principles here at this point. Now, I want to point out something though I think is really important. Notice that it caused him to weep. These people, these enemies of the cross, have actually caused Paul to weep. That causes me to believe that they're probably not just pagans acting like pagans. They're not just unbelievers acting like unbelievers. I don't believe that based on the language here that he uses. Why would you weep when the world acts like the world? It doesn't make sense. Rather, I believe he gives us a clue of who he means. If you're taking notes... Write this down. Acts chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. This is Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders. He says, From among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things. Why? To draw away the disciples after themselves. And therefore, watch. And remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. And so the people that brought Paul to tears were people who were professing Christians within the church. Who, instead of pointing people to Jesus, instead of pointing people to the gospel, were drawing people to themselves. It was about them. Their speech was perverse, meaning it was crooked, not straight. Why? Again, because they were drawing attention to themselves. Their ministry was about them. Everything revolved around them. Oh, look at what I have done. And if one draws attention to oneself, who is that person not pointing to? Jesus. And therefore, you're not pointing people to the cross of Christ, and you become in, at odds with Jesus Christ himself. You become an enemy of the cross. This is humbling for me. God forbid that I should ever, ever draw people to myself as opposed to pointing them to Jesus. God forbid. And notice that he says here, this isn't just a few people who do this. Notice he says here, many walk this path. Now, by by and large, remember that he uses the word walk here. In other words, it's not that he, someone just stumbles, right? It's not like God does something and then we take credit for it and then we're convicted right away and we, we repent. Have you ever done that? I think the average Christian has, right? God has done something through you, and you all of a sudden you think that you're super Christian? No, I'm the only one. He's not talking about moments where our pride wells up from within us, and we take credit for what really belongs to the Lord. This is a walk he's talking about. This is something that takes place progressively in someone's life, where everything becomes about them. And I think it was Billy Graham who said, we never become more like Satan than when we touch the glory that this is the warning here, that if ministry becomes about a person, you know, if we call this the Church of Luke Miller, run, run, seriously. First, you better rebuke me, then run. They fellowship within the church. In fact, I believe these people can actually articulate the gospel, but their life shows that they've missed the gospel. Their walk shows that they're off course. They've missed Philippians 2, 5 through 11, and they're self-deceived. And listen, as you fellowship with people, listen to who is the subject of most of their conversation. If most of their conversation revolves around them, again, run. You're not going to experience genuine Christian fellowship with that person. You're going to get sucked in to a me-centered world. And isn't that what God is delivering us from? I don't want to go back to a me-centered world. I want a Jesus Christ-centered world. And he goes on to describe these people, these enemies of the cross. Verse 19, whose end is destruction. And so everything that they've done will be destroyed. Why? Because they did not build it on the right foundation. It was not built on the gospel of Christ. It was built on self-centeredness. It was built on them. Not only that, whose God, and notice this is in the present, whose God is their belly. Now there's a question, what does this mean, their God is their belly? Many commentators believe at this point, remember Paul speaking to this church in Philippi who was influenced by Greek culture. These people would have known Greek literature. And so most likely he's actually using a term that they would have been familiar with based on the literature that they grew up with. And this is primarily referencing uh, Euripides' Cyclops. Do you ever hear Cyclops? And listen to what Cyclops would state. He says, "My flocks, which I sacrifice to, no one but myself, and not to the gods, and to this my belly, the greatest of the gods, for to eat and drink each day, and to give oneself no trouble." This is the God of wise men. Who is the God of Cyclops? Himself. His own belly. He lived a life to please himself, to gratify himself, his own pleasures, his own desires. So when Paul here says, whose God is their belly, could it mean gluttony? Yeah, it could. But it also could mean sensuousness or self-centeredness, similar to the word that we use for the flesh. And this is the person's mind when it is opposed to the Spirit of God and manifests in a variety of ways. Now, again, I want to give you a quick example if you're taking notes. Romans 16, verses 17 and 18. I think Paul's going to unpack this for the Romans. He says this, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses. Notice he uses that word note again. Note those who cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve the Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. And just as we see those who walk in the same way as Paul's to note them, so we need to note those people whose God is their belly, who serve themselves in ministry whose God is their belly, and also whose glory is in their shame. So when it speaks of glory, it speaks of the things that that person delights in. And what he's saying is the things that this person delights in should bring them shame. They're glorying in something other than the gospel. They're glorying in themselves. That should be shameful to even think of such. And so they're glorying in these things. But I believe as he goes on, here's what I, what I think is the key to understanding this person. It's where their mind is. Who set their mind on earthly things. Notice it doesn't say they think about earthly things. I think we all do. But it's where they set their mind. They're concerned about their title again. They're concerned about their position, recognition, applause of man It's an extreme manifestation of selfishness that will indeed inflict harm on the body of Jesus Christ. Because we're either going to be in this thing for Jesus' sake or we're going to be in this thing for our own sake. And that's a decision that every Christian has to make. Who's it about? And when they don't get the recognition that they want, when they don't get the pat on the back, when they don't get the position, what happens? The claws come out. Seek and destroy mode and whatever gets in my way of what I want. Self is such a self-destructive thing, isn't it? We want something, and when we don't get it, we destroy. And that's what he's warning us about here, that mind that is totally fixed on earthly things. It's not focused on Jesus Christ. It's not focused on glorifying him. It's wanting to please self. These people have abandoned eternity and their heavenly prize for earthly benefits. And the sad part is those earthly benefits, as we see at the beginning of this section, will end in destruction. Have nothing to show. You know, on that day when you meet your Savior face-to-face, don't you want something to give unto Him to His glory that He did through you? That you gave Him the glory for? Don't you want to be able to cast Figuratively speaking, those crowns at the feet of Jesus. I believe when you see Jesus face to face, you're going to want to give him every ounce of glory, every ounce of honor that you possibly can when you realize who he is. And you're going to want to forsake every self-centered thing on this side of the globe if you were to put yourself in that position. Fast forward at the feet of Jesus. Jesus is in direct conflict with these people. Why? Because he made himself nothing. He became a bondservant. And he went lower so that others would be exalted. That's ministry. That's ministry. And if it's anything else than that, don't call it Christian ministry. Call it a self-centered trip. Call it a position of desire. Call it a power-hungry person. But don't call it Christianity. They are enemies of the cross of Jesus. But notice in verse 20, he's not here to try to discourage us this morning. He wants to encourage us to finish faithfully. For our citizenship is where? Here on earth? No, it's in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. It's a fixed point to which all of our current affairs are concerned. It regulates everything that we do here on this earth. The fact that this is where we're heading. Why? Because Jesus is there. (laughs) Because our life is found in him. This is where we're going. This is our citizenship. And so everything that we do, again, should revolve around this. It doesn't mean that we're not concerned about things here on earth, right? It doesn't mean that we say, well, just this earth can burn. No. Why? Because that wasn't the heart of our Lord. Remember, our Lord came down to this earth, didn't he? Our Lord was concerned about the people on this earth. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. So it's not that we just say, well, you know what? Citizenship in heaven. Packing my bags. The earth's going to burn. Just wait for Jesus. (laughs) There have been Christians through the centuries that have had that mentality, right? Especially when you get those date setters. Please never listen to someone who sets a date about Jesus' return. But when people do, what do they do? They sell everything. They pack up and they just, they're ready for the mothership, so to speak. No, we're here on this earth. We're to be servants like Jesus, but our citizenship's in heaven. This isn't our home. This isn't where we lay our roots, so to speak. This isn't where everything revolves around what happens on this earth. No, we're focused on the eternal things. We're focused on the kingdom that awaits us, that our hearts long for. And not only that, but we eagerly wait for the Savior. I love that. We eagerly wait. It's not a passive waiting here. It's not like, well, you know, Jesus is coming back anytime. And yeah, I know that might impact the way that I live. No, we eagerly wait for his return. It impacts the way that we live today. And this eagerly waiting, it implies that we take our eyes off of the other things and we fix them solely on what is before us, our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that's really good news, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to what? According to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. It's his power that's going to do this. It's his power that has set everything into motion in the world that we live in today. And the same power that's going to subdue all things under Jesus is not going to be great. Everything will be under his feet. And we see from 1 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is then going to hand it over to the Father. And that day, when all things are subject to Jesus, is a great day. That is our end. That is where we're heading, and so the idea is now submit underneath him today because he's your king. To the Philippians, Caesar was king. Caesar is Lord, but Paul's reminding them, no, Jesus is Lord. To the Hebrews, God was savior in the Old Testament. He's reminding the Philippians, Jesus is God, Jesus is savior. Everything in our life is heading towards him. Why wouldn't we want to live that way, therefore? Why would we hold on to things of this earth, as vain as they are, that are going to be destroyed? And therefore, my beloved, and long for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. May you stand fast in the Lord. May everything in your life revolve around Jesus Christ, him crucified and resurrected, glorified, ascended, and coming back. And if your life revolves around that, if you get nothing else from this message today, make sure your world revolves around him, and you'll be okay. Jesus will finish the work that he started in your life. If you find your world revolving around you, repent. Confess your sin. Speak the same thing that God speaks and walk forward with your walk with the Lord. God will reveal that to us, praise him. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the warnings that you give us, as there are so many people in this world who are trying to take attention away from you. Lord, there are so many people, we could look on YouTube, we could look on the internet, Father, we could listen to messages of people who proclaim to teach the gospel, and yet you're not even mentioned. There's no mention of a cross. There's no mention of a resurrection. It's just all about people. It's about us, Lord. And God, we want to avoid those things. We want our hearts to be aligned with truth, Lord. We want to think rightly. We want to think the way that you think, Lord. And your spirit thinks. And your spirit always points to Jesus. Your spirit always glorifies him. Lord, we pray that over our church. We pray that this church would be founded on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Lord. That, Father, it would be founded on the word of God, Lord, that proclaims a Messiah, that proclaims the Son of God victorious and risen. And, Lord, as individuals within the church, we want our lives individually to revolve around your Son. That whatever we do, Lord, we'd be motivated by the gospel. Even as we speak, Lord, may people understand that we're proclaiming a king, we're proclaiming a savior, we're proclaiming God in the flesh who came and ransomed and saved us, rescued us. He's the ultimate veteran, Lord. He gave his life so that the world may know you, so that we might be saved, Lord. Thank you for that, Father. Thank you for for your son in Jesus' name.